This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a balmy, good Lord, ridiculous, humid. Is this August, October morning? Cade Massey, hosting this morning, faculty here at the Wharton School, with three of my faculty buddies and collaborators here at Wharton Moneyball, all three, the whole team. Audie Weiner, opposite me, in a summer plaid shirt, appropriate right. for the balmy day. Shane Jensen, Natalie attired in the winning team's cap. Oh, and God. Eric Bradlow to my left. <laughs> Eric Bradlow, <laughs> chagrined, Just sad. dressed as I am. Just. These guys are heroes coming in today. Yeah. We had a tough night, and I had a particularly bad night on Monday night where I was That's at the I stadium. Hear. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. We've got some baseball to talk about. Apparently, they're playing baseball these days, and apparently these guys care. So we're going to talk some baseball. You guys can talk it with us if you'd like to. We wish you would. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or drop us an email, boss man. Matty Datch will stand by. Take your email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's an especially good way to catch us if you're listening when we're replayed. We are replayed four or five times over the course of the week. If it's not eight to ten Eastern on a Wednesday morning, you're catching a replay. Send us an email. You can also catch us on Twitter. The handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically. It's a, not a bad way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. Have a regular show this morning with two fantastic guests, one at the bottom of this hour, another at the top of the next hour. Josh Hermsmeyer talking football analytics in about half an hour. And then Rob Nyer, baseball analytics legend and, and, and newly again an author, going to talk about his book at the top of the hour. Between now and then, fellas, open lines, open conversation. I have an idea what you want to talk about. But how are you feeling this morning? Uh, well, I want to talk about... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, how do you know? I, so, I'm, I'm so, feeling pretty fantastic. So for those who don't know, the Red Sox defeated the Yankees by beating them twice at home. But what particularly struck me was the Monday night game, even though, especially since I was there. But the Yankees were... Um, just essentially dis- managed back in the 1980s. That's that's basically how to describe it. What are the hallmarks of 80s management versus 2000s? So this is this is a couple things. So what for those of you who don't know, Severino came out for the Yankees and he just got he was pitching very badly. So the first three innings he gave up three He's, runs. He, he we we talked actually before the series even started. Actually before the wild card game well. about yeah. what the best Yankees pitcher would be for that wild card game. And Severino I described as the high variance pitcher. High and, variance. You, and you saw both ends of that in the right. so he came out he came out but what he, so, so from a modern perspective from a, from the classical perspective he pitched 3 innings he got tagged for 3 runs okay maybe we'll let him go out to the 4th but from the modern perspective where you look at swing and miss rate and you look at hard hit ball these are stat cast data the hard hit ball stat cast data. and i would just interrupt to say yeah. from a stadium Adi texted me in the middle of the 3rd inning saying even the balls that are outs are being hit hard right mm. so some would say, well, he gave up three runs and three. That's not good. No one wants Some the area of yeah. nine. But you texted me. You remember I said that? He's you texted pitching me and said, horribly. every ball is being hit hard, even the outs. Even the outs, even the fouls. And they weren't missing the balls. And so 
from a, a modern perspective, you go, this guy doesn't have it, and it's the third inning. Now, again, from the modern perspective, you get rid of the starter. You bring in your relief. You bring in relievers. So he, they brought him out for the fourth so inning quickly. That's mistake number one. That's mistake number one. Well, mistake number one is to not bring him out really early, after the second or third inning. The mistake number two is to bring him out on the fourth. Again, four innings, got to get it, some time out of a starter. That is a classic... 1980s uh, manager, managerial decision. Yeah, no, so you don't. So they brought him out for the fourth. No, you don't. And then, of course, here's this is the killer of them all. He loads the bases because he's, I mean, they're, they're just hitting everything. Well, let me ask the bases. Well, well, so you've obviously, Cade, we've been on Morton Moneyball for a long time now. Bases loaded, high leverage situation. Mm-hmm. What have we been saying for years? Who do you bring in? You, you bring in your closer, essentially. All right. Now, the Yankees right. have four or something of them. like a closer. Yeah, the Yankees, Yankees have, four have four closers, closers who essentially were untouchable this entire series. And they bring in their back-end starter, Lance Lynn. <laughs> yeah, right. The back-end starter, which is a 1980s With the move. bases loaded. With the bases loaded. <laughs> loaded, and he gets destroyed. Uh, yeah. And now the Yankees uh, are down 10 nothing, and the game's over. Oh, they so deserve this outcome. It, that's, it, what, it, that's what it, I exactly. know. They deserve that. All right, so the best part, of course, is... Best part for, for me, I would I'm on the subway before the game is over. I mean, because it's 16 to 1, or by the time we left, it was 12 to 1 or something ridiculous. And... It's 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 uh, New Yorkers and everybody's talking about the game and I'm with my twelve year old my twelve year old nephew and he says they should have brought in you know Robertson or they should have and then and Batances and the guy in, and the guy in the in the subway is like nope you don't do that like, you don't you're do that. you're in you 1980s too <laughs> yeah and 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 it's it's funny because my my twelve year old he held he held his own he said you just bring in your best pitcher. It's like, no, they all have roles. So he was describing how they all have roles, <laughs> and you need to follow those roles. So it's, it takes an extremely long time before you can just yeah. to, you know, shell this. So from the Yankees' perspective, and by the way, it happened again the next I night. mean, Lance so, Lynn did have a role. He's a back-end yeah, starter back-end that starter. shouldn't have been playing in the playoffs. <laughs> and, but the thing <laughs> exactly. is, is, is Yankees have, these, have at least four closers on their team. Yeah, four closers. And the only way you're going to use them is wow. if you break out of the traditional roles and bring them in at, at ridiculously early times so did, and to start so, the game so if there, necessary. There are executives with the Yankees who are sophisticated. They've got one of the biggest analytics shops in baseball. They staffed the roster in a certain way. How do they feel about the management decisions by Boone? I think they and probably. Why, feel, why don't they exercise more influence? Well, there? Uh, my understanding is and this is pure I know it's speculation. Not, I know it's not just, and this I know is it's not perfect. This you is your just, this is your managerial more more lens for this. But apparently, they hired Aaron Boone to be a yes guy. It'll take instructions, and it turned turned out he was exactly the opposite of that. <laughs> I would hope. Let me ask. Let me say the following. Let me say it's not as simple as we would like. Even in what you would think of a small organization with a clear hierarchy, they can't just tell these guys what to do. They'd like to, but they can't. I mean, when Daryl Morey had had uh, Kevin McHale as, as his coach with Absolutely. the Rockets, just as an example, he's having to kind of practice persuasion on McHale. I'm just hoping at least the following. At least what Adi's describing. Let's at least hope. That the analytics team at the Yankees, which, as you admit, we've all know, is a very sophisticated team, sits down with Boone after the season's over now and does a post-mortem on the game and just say, listen, we know it's your choice, it's your decision, but here's why what you did goes against modern analytics. And I think at worst, matter of fact, I hate to say it this way, but as statisticians, we have an obligation to do that. Yeah. We have an obligation to do so. And I actually, Kate, you said what I felt. When they brought in Lynn and he got shellacked, I'm like, they got what they deserved. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what they deserved. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's 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 move on from the 2018 Yankees. I'm sorry, fellas. But well, we got to move on. Well, well they're out. I just make let's a comment to the, the 2018. I'll make a comment to the 2018 Red Sox. When you watch them on the field, they do things that the Yankees don't do at all. And in some ways, those are the 1980s ways of playing or 70s. They're terrifically fast, and you can see that when you're in the stadium, how quick they are and how much how 
They take the, thir- the extra bases. Yankees, I don't think, took a third base on a single the entire season because they did not have quick runners. Every single to the outfield, they would move. Well, they're usually to jogging around the bases because they usually hit a home exactly. run. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, that's that's the Yankees all-time approach. record this year. That's yeah. the Yankees' approach. But the Red Sox are running. Their fielding is fantastic. Every time Andujar got a ball at third base, you'd be cringing. Yeah. Where's the ball going to go? Or even that game-ending play last night was right. pretty amazing. Was amazing play. I mean, amazing plays, and and they were just but putting just them say out for, one before after the we other. put the total fork into the Yankees yeah, yeah. and talk about it. Say it's why done. Cade's point. Why was your point? Why is that 1980s baseball as opposed to not modern baseball? Well, modern baseball is the Yankees approach, which is lots of home runs. And, yeah, and, and it doesn't matter how fast it. your base runners are because you're not supposed to have base runners. Right, you're, you're either right. you're either striking out or, or running all the way around the bases. But what was interesting is Porcello did exactly what Rick Peterson had told us uh, some time ago, which is the antidote to all these home runs, which is elevate, get those balls up, and he would just elevate like an elevator into through the strike zone, minimum, medium, high, highest. Yeah. And the Yankees in through through five innings, six innings, however Porcello was in, they couldn't do anything with him. So yeah. I'm curious about the price. Incident. So this is what was game two, maybe in this series, where one of the supposed best starters for the Sox this year goes out and doesn't make it through two innings. Much yeah. Less well, four. notice they pulled him after two innings. Much they smarter did. than they the did. Yankees, and they did. I mean, that was you know that ended up being a more competitive game than game three, I guess. But so, and they've decided to use him out of the pen for the rest of the playoffs. Is that is that the? Deal? I don't know. If, I don't know if they've actually for. I mean, if 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 they've kind of formally an, announced that, I I did not catch that in the in the media. But I mean, again, they. They could potentially do that because they are more of this mix. They are, I guess, a more modern team in the sense that they don't mind using a star. You know, I mean, they brought Chris they Sale, their, ma- their ace in to pitch a, an inning of relief last night. Mm-hmm. They don't mind kind of rotating through starters and relievers kind of, you know, like their equivalents. So. so so, how is it shaping up with the Astros? This seems like as marquee of well, I think I think, I, I, think I, I, I heard last night it's the highest win total of combined of the two teams in a playoff series ever in the NBA. Wow, that's it might be it might be just be for LCS, but and it's, one of those teams is defending champ, and yeah. one of those teams is the glorious. It must be. It almost must. Well, I don't know if it must be in the ALCS. I'm thinking when that Seattle Mariners team in whatever, 98 yeah. or so, played anybody, that almost has to be the oh. highest win total because <laughs> right. they won 118 or something that year. And 116, they must have, yeah. 116. Yeah. Although we have 108 and 103. 211 is a that, lot of was, wins. The Yankees played against the Seattle, but in the but that was in the division series. So it's hard to know what, what we're counting as the denominator. So, so, Give, but, give us the breakdown on the Astros. Give us a breakdown on Astros, Red Sox. What well, I, they're, they're very comparable teams. Um, I'm going to probably go with the Astros by just a, a, a smidgen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, the, the Red Sox are a little, have a couple more weaknesses, particularly in their bullpen. Yeah, I mean, they do no, have Kimbrough at the end, and he looked crappy last night. And they have three great, great starters. If you throw Yavaldi, I don't know what you can think of, but that middle there is is vulnerable. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, this sort of mix and match where you're bringing in relievers in high leverage situations, I'm not so. I'm, I think the Red Sox have the right idea with that. I just don't necessarily think they have the personnel to pull it off. Mm-hmm. I, I think they are. They were almost their bullpen was exposed already in this Yankees series, and so I think will be further exposed in the Astros. Are you telling me that the bullpen didn't matter as much in the regular season because they just had a phenomenal regular season despite this weakness? You're saying it's going to matter or, more, or, or, or I mean, it'll matter I, more in the playoffs. Yeah, and I, and I just think a couple Kimbrel specifically, their closer looks particularly vulnerable right now. He's he's not pitching right now as well as okay. he was for most of the rest of the regular I, I season. He had an amazing regular season. I think what also happens related to, you know, Rick Peterson has said this a number of times. Let's assume every team in the playoff is a good team. They're good teams. Um, Good hitters, when they see a pitcher for the second, third Mm. time, 
get better. So this idea that I'm just going to run, like, like let's take the Astros-Red Sox series coming up. Let's say it goes six, seven games. I'm going to have all my starters go seven innings, eight innings in each. No, that's not yeah. what's going to happen in these games. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen in playoff games as much where mm-hmm. the starter goes seven, eight innings. During the regular season, Red Sox had great starting pitching. The Astros had great starting pitching. It's going to come down to the, if you'd like, the old-time yeah, middle relief. Right. I, 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 I would it not be surprised if there's a few extra inning-type games, you know, really you know, close battles at the end. And I have, I personally would have more confidence so, in the Astros' I, bullpen than I would in the Red Sox' But you Sox agree, bullpen. though, it's probably going to come down to, like even last night's game, let's imagine the coin flips the other way on the last at-bat. The guy doubles into the corner. It's 5-4, to four, Yankees win. We walk off. Everyone's happy. We, as in the Yankee fans, we walk up <laughs> yeah. happy. Then it's a coin flip in Game oh, Five. Yeah, yeah. So I do you not believe that the Astros Red Sox game is going to come down to I'll make it up a half a dozen high leverage yep. situations. No, I and think the question is who goes four and two in those high leverage right. situations? Yeah. Well, okay, well, so, uh, one second. While well, I agree with that, and, and more so in this series than others, because I mean these guys really do seem well matched. Where you know very some of the much well matched. Dodgers Braves weren't exactly but if you take an a look even at- match, but but but. But tell me this: the uh, in what way are they different from the team from last year? So we saw the Astros do this thing. Last the Astros year. look somehow even better than they looked last year, which is pretty amazing. They didn't to lose me. any major pieces, right? No, no. I mean, they 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 kind of scuffled a little bit. This year. scuffled. They won 103 games, but they they scuffled a little bit. Their their division was only competitive because they had like amazing amounts of injuries that they have since. Got you know they right, they're, they they're going in relatively healthy now, but okay. they have not been healthy for most of the season. Okay. So I, I would almost say the Astros, you know, on paper are the better team. Well, in terms of Pythagoras, which is your forecaster of your mm-hmm. winning percentage, they actually outdid the Red Sox handily. Yeah. Really? Yes. Yeah. The Red Sox overplayed and, uh, and, the, and the Astros underplayed, which is All incredible because right. they right. also won 100-plus games. How much does home field matter in these things? Well, Astros actually set a, a, one of all-time records in terms of differential, home field versus their away. Um, so, which is which is remarkable. They lost a lot, and I think they lost a lot on the road, which is kind of nuts. I mean, won a lot on the road, which is a oh, little, little bit weird. Yeah. By the way, I'm not. Yeah. I have they no. Won, I mean, if you saw, I saw a graph yes. which actually shows Colorado usually at the top uh, in terms of having a huge home field right. advantage, and Astros looked at the, the bottom in terms of mm, this is. But usually, so so if I would say home field advantage probably goes to the Red Sox because they're a team that understands how to play in Fenway Park, which okay. is a big home field. But I want to throw out your 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 fifty cent your fifty percent um, yeah. question. We had all four teams. In the in the uh, in these rounds of playoffs, the favorite won, and right. it, with the, and the only game that was the only series that was a little bit close was the Yankees Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Those were sort of blowouts. Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, exactly. these were the, of course the biggest differentials. I yeah, mean, no, I, that's and and I mean it does obviously argue against my coin flip theory. I, I well, it, it argues against well, your fifty percent coin flip yeah. theory. It just means that you know a hundred and eight win team playing a hundred win team. There's probably a slight edge there. It's about, yeah, and sixty percent edge for the Red Sox. Yeah, so you know you flip. Point six coins instead of yeah. point five coins, and all of a sudden, three to one is probably the expected outcome. Yeah. And you know, I don't think the Dodgers played the Braves. I think a lot of people felt that they overperformed this year. The Braves, yeah. the Braves, the Braves overperformed to their true ability. And matter of fact, a lot of people would say the Dodgers underperformed yeah. to their true ability. So, I mean, it's easy to go back, look back yeah. on it, but I'm not that surprised. What do you guys by think it. of the Brewers Dodgers series now that we've got kind of? I, I mean, do I get to use the word momentum? Yeah, you certainly do. <laughs> well, that's why they I like the Brewers. Have the Brewers. I like the Brewers. I like the Brewers. They won eleven in a row. The Brewers have won eleven straight, and teams historically who have won eleven straight have gone on to win the World Series 
win the World Series four out of five times. I just I do remember, and I, I'll, I'll bring it up because it's a happy memory. In 2007, the Colorado Rockies went up against the Boston Red Sox in the World Series, and Colorado came into that World Series having lost one game in their last 21. Oh, my oh I remember God. that. That's pretty solid. And the Red Sox swept them. Yeah, right, exactly. So momentum, momentum. So tell me something about. <laughs> tell me something about the. We know about the Dodgers. I mean, the Dodgers are basically the West Coast Red Sox, right, or West Coast Yankees. Huge amount of talent and and money ballish paid and, for. Yep. Paid for, mm-hmm. high pay- payroll. Okay, but what about the Brewers? Now, here's a small market team maybe we can get behind. Tell me something about the Brewers. Well, I mean, they've got basically they've got the, the, they've got the NL MVP on their team. They've got a surprise, another amazing bullpen. Oh, 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 oh. I'm, I Christian Yelich. Thank you. Tell You're me right. more, tell, tell me well, more you about so you weren't. So let me just say yeah. one thing, just because Katie obviously I mean, we weren't no here last Holt, week. But. We had a long discussion <laughs> about this, whether – so he played – obviously they played a playoff game. Brewers played a playoff game to dis- against, to, against the, Cubs. the Cubs. Yeah, yeah. Just, just want to repeat quickly 10 seconds from last week. That game counts towards the regular season. Had Yelich gotten a home run and two RBIs in that game, he would have won the Triple Crown. My question last week was, would that have been an asterisk Triple Crown? Because uh, he got 163. Yeah, just to right. let you know how good he yeah, was, yeah. he ended up one RBI and one home run behind the Triple Crown this year. Wow. So this is the NL MVP. How yeah. long has it been since someone won the Triple Crown? Well, it's been in the National League, 1937 oh my God. was the last winner of the Triple Miguel Crown. Miguel Cabrera did it a, a, a Maybe a decade ago. Yeah, about a decade in, ago. In, in, in the DL. American League, it's actually been done. Mickey Mantle's done it a dinner no, bunch of times. Carl Yastrzemski won yeah, it. Carl Yastrzemski won, won with very low totals. It was a, remarkable a 301 year. batting average. 301 batting average, 32 home runs. Yeah. Look at look at you Yankees taking the Four Red Sox f- hitter down. Yeah, he won it. It was, it was, <laughs> it was a soft him. year for that <laughs> triple crown. <laughs> Still a triple crown. But anyway. So, in so his name. markets, by the way, markets have brewers... Moderate size favorites over the I mean, Dodgers favorites over the Brewers. They oh, have yeah. Dodgers sure. minus one sixty five, Brewers plus one thirty five. They have Sox and Astros dead even. Yeah, just a complete. I think that toss. sounds about right. Nobody to knows. me at least. Yeah. All right. So uh, rooting interest on the West. What do you guys do? What do the Yankees? Do y'all pack it up and start talking about football or, or preseason baseball in any sense? Or what do you, what do you, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'll probably watch some baseball, but not nearly as riveted <laughs> by the whole thing as I was. Not yeah. really. I'm, I'm I'm off of baseball. I went. I, the first thing that I saw when the Yankees lost is I said, "When is uh, the first NBA game? What, what, when is this happening? Is there college you, you, football you tonight?" Have that, you have that ability. Yeah. I am I am too too centralized on watch, one sport. I will watch some of the games. Yes, I will. All right. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can jump in here and join us if you'd like. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Give us a call. The whole crew is in this morning. Cade, Shane, Adi, and Eric. All right. Uh, highlights were around other sports. You mentioned NBA. Are we talking about NBA yet? You mean like the summer league or whatever they're getting started no, with? Right now? No, no, no. The, no, the regular season starts next week. Right, right, right. It's, it's, uh, what do you call this? The uh, spring training or <laughs> preseason? Pre-season, pre-season yeah. in basketball. But there are some interesting things going on. I mean, one, LeBron is playing for the Lakers. This is a bit of a thing. Um, it's going to be weird to see him in those uniforms. I don't. We, were we have we learned anything about the Lakers? We know, you know, there are some there's some movement. Irving's talking about re-signing with the Celtics. People are talking about some substantive things here and there, but I guess we haven't seen anything on the court yet. I think the Lakers are. I mean, I could say this about a lot of teams. Maybe, maybe half the teams in the NBA. The Lakers are one superstar away from being a legitimate title contender, in my view. Given assuming LeBron is still in that window where, you know, age the age curve it's yeah. look, he's not only is he I think it's thirty three or thirty four, he 
He's got to, I mean, even for LeBron James, he's got to be an old 34. I mean, the guy's played more minutes. He's played more minutes right now in his career than Michael Jordan played in his entire career. Well, remember, he was in heavy rotation as an 18. No, 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 I know. So I'm saying, though, but they've got, look, they've got talented young players. I, I always pronounce the guy's name wrong. Is it Klizik? The The... The tall power forward guy on the Lakers. <laughs> That's as good pronunciation as I could do. They also have Brandon Ingram. They yeah. have Lonzo Ball. Yeah. So you add LeBron James. If they had one more superstar on that mm-hmm. team, I believe the Lakers could actually contend for the title. And I, and I think that probably will happen say, next, next year. Well, next that's year. the hope yeah. is that because they've got a ton of cap space. So you put LeBron James with, I'll make up a name. Let's imagine Kawhi Leonard decides to leave Toronto and now all of a sudden he's with LeBron. Mm-hmm. And you add that to Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, etc. Kuzma is the guy's name. Yeah. Kuzma is the guy's name. They've got a lot of talent. I like the Lakers this year. I like the Lakers to make the playoffs in the West, which is impressive. Is is Do we have any reason to believe the Warriors aren't almost even better than they were last year right for the west i think i do think they're worse and i think the thing that's going to happen for them is i think the probability of injury is getting higher so older this is now the fifth straight year so i mean it depends where you think someone's peak is but steph curry has been injury prone the last few years clay thompson i these guys have played a lot of minutes in the last few years but their of course, cha- their championship odds are minus one eighty. By, by I, the way, I mean, so the NBA is such that's amazing odds on favorite. It, it is such that they will be ridiculous. able to rest a lot of those guys throughout the season. Well, that's the thing because um, it's clear they don't care if they're the one seed or not. But I just also want to remind all of you: beside, before you bet on that one at minus one eighty, if Chris Paul, in my belief, does not injure himself in Game Six of that Western Conference Finals last year, the Rockets were up three to two and leading the game when Chris Paul got injured. Chris Paul injures himself, they lose Game 6, and then they lose Game 7. I think the Rockets would have beaten the Warriors last year if Chris Paul hadn't injured himself. Mm -hmm. I think they're potentially... uh, The Rockets, I think, are a better team this year, both Mm -hmm. with their draft picks. They picked up Carmelo Anthony, who can score something off the bench. I'm I minus one eighty is way over. So you think, way, I think, way I think the over. odds are basically factoring that the the Rockets are essentially their only obstacle, and plus well, they have a minus two sixty to win the West. The markets are minus two sixty. Minus two sixty. So I mean, if you think of, you, you, if you give them one yeah. minus yeah. one eighty, you're basically yeah. putting them at about thirty five percent roughly yep. to win the whole thing, which yeah. means you're essentially giving them a pass to the to the championship. In the West, oh, I, I usually you would say that because obviously the 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 final would be a coin flip. I just think in this ca- in betters minds this time the final is not a coin. I, I, no, I it's think not. it's no, a, it's in basketball, but you're giving them a free pass to the finals of the of the of the division. I don't, I don't, I don't, since we're on South, since we're on Boston uh, Admiration Day today, hmm. you don't think if I give you the right now the Celtics against whether it's the Warriors or the Celtics against the Rockets in the finals, you don't think this Celtic team has a chance. It has a chance. It has like a thirty percent chance. I think it's higher than that. Yeah, there's for the for the whole thing. No, 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 no. no, no, Celtics versus Warriors. Celtics Celtics versus versus the West Coast. I I think this is a very. So what do you give it? So you you give them say thirty percent, and if you give the Rockets say thirty percent. Then the then at minimum they have to get through both of those teams. So multiply point seven times point seven is that's your that's your fifty percent, and then get all the way through. You still think it's uh it's uh not thirty uh, percent is not a good value or minus one eighty. No, I think it's too. You high. You think that's too high? I huh? still think it's too high. Now you remember you're not taking the other side. They don't. They have a gap there. Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. But either way, I I'm excited about the NBA season. I'm excited about. I am excited about the Celtics. Look, I'm also excited to see if the Sixers can improve. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, you know, I know people don't want to talk about it much, but we did. I mean, Celtics are happy we traded with them. They got 
the guy they probably wanted anyway, Jason Tatum, and mm. the number one, a number one pick from Sacramento, which is unprotected. We did draft last year the number one player in the entire draft. If mm-hmm. Markel Fultz comes back and plays anything like he played, then we have Fultz, Simmons, and Embiid, and we could contend in the East. There's no yeah. reason so the Sixers can't win so the East. So tell us more about Fultz. He 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 hurt his. He had this shooting trouble last year, but the idea is that that was because of an injury, a shoulder, a shoulder muscular injury. Like, kind of think of it as like a weakening of your shoulder muscle. Do we do we have much of a sense of how he, supposedly he's back? Right. But well, here's what I've read: He literally took two thousand shots a day during the summer, mm-hmm. and what I was told was actually very interesting. There was an interesting analytics article about Fultz. Every single one of his shots was recorded for kind of what they were calling angular repetition. Yeah, yeah. So was he repeating the same motion each time? Yeah. And now what really would have been neat is, I don't know if you guys have ever, you guys I know a little bit plays a little golf. You know, there's one of those golf things you can wear if you don't swing on a proper plane, almost like a beeping vest. I would have liked to have seen almost like Markel Fultz wearing like a beeping vest if his, you know, optimal shot trajectory yeah, was not right. met on yeah. a certain shot. Tell me what kind of player he was as a college player. Like, why did they draft him number one? What is well, he two bring? reasons. What one is he, he shot 41% from three-point range. So that's a good okay. start for a player. Mm-hmm. That's a good start. And then secondly, um, you could even see it at the end of last year. Anytime Markel Fultz wants to get to the rim... Markel Fultz is getting to the rim, mm-hmm. and at six foot five, with he's got a seven foot wingspan, he's wow. going to finish at the rim. And so, this is a man where if he's on his game, he's lightning fast. Okay. I mean, any time he wants to get by you, he's going Who's to get he comparable by you. To? That's a good question. I'm just trying to think of a lightning fast guy that could shoot in the NBA right now. That's a good question. Um, well, the the guy that the Celtics took. One or two picks afterwards is not the terrible comp, right? What Jason Tatum? Yeah. Well, he's a much bigger player, right? I mean, he's a six nine, six ten kind of. Okay. I don't know if you call him small four because I don't know if those positions exist anymore in the NBA. But he's much more of a okay of a bigger player. I don't know. Maybe maybe someone like a, a Demar Derozan or somebody like that on Toronto. Someone that you know, someone that was you know is a real six foot five long guard can really get to the rim, can also shoot. How does he fit with Simmons? Well, here's the problem, Ben Simmons has the ball in his hand almost all the time. Mm-hmm. So you've got to surround Ben Simmons with shooters. Well, the 41% three-point Markel Fultz is a shooter. Mm-hmm. If he's going to shoot like he did last year, which is like 40% and 15% from three, then it's the fit is not great unless you say we're going to have Fultz be the backup in some sense. But I don't think the Sixers drafted the number one overall pick in the draft yeah, with hoping that he was a backup. It's so weird that the how, – how tall is Simmons? At least 6'10". Yeah, so 6'10 guy's the point guard and the 6'5 guy's the off guard. That's an interesting setup. No, that's the way – that's well. That was the Lakers for years, right? Magic Johnson was six foot nine, and Byron Scott mm-hmm. is six foot four. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, anybody playing with Magic was the off guard. Anybody right. playing with Magic had to shoot because, similarly, Magic Johnson was not a great shooter. 
But either way, I'm excited about the the Sixers. Yeah. And but the Celtics are the class of the East. And uh, I, I mean, I just think it is that much more wide open just because LeBron's not in that conference anymore, right? So I mean, I th- I I mean, I agree that the Celtics have got to be favored, but I, I I see that the East is pretty wide open. I, you think there's a more than three teams in the East that can win? You think Celtics, Toronto? Let's not forget Toronto. No, probably, won, Toronto was the number one seed in the East last year, and they picked it up. Probably Kawhi is only three teams that are really legitimate, but that's more than one. Which is what it has been for right. you know the last five right. years or so, right? And probably there's no more than two teams in the West that are legitimate. Probably maybe OKC. Yeah, I, that's so. Right. But let's say there's six teams that can win the and, NBA and this title. Is, this the other, is, you know, oh boy, we haven't played a game and we've already whittled it down. Well, that's what happens. Well, I mean, no, this is basketball, basketball, right? This is basketball. I mean, it's this literally isn't four this isn't teams golf. you know this are going to be there. It's not baseball. There's six teams that can but win I, the NBA say, this year. Just to, I don't want to belabor baseball. Now at the end of the season, we can go back and look at our forecasts, and they weren't bad. The only teams that didn't make it. Uh, that we thought would make it were the Nationals and the Cubs. And the Cubs I mean, the Brewers did the certainly, I think. The Brewers were, weren't played, on anybody's The Brewers and the, and the Braves radar. were the surprise. Let me ask you, let me ask you But the others were so, yeah, well, exactly you, what we forecast. Hold on, hold on. How, how are you judging? How are you evaluating? What's the standard? We say, oh, we did pretty good. And then we've come up with some exceptions. No, because we have, because if you look at it, oh, so there, if you think about this, eight teams total, right? So we, so we got six asking, out of the eight. The task we was two. to predict the baseball, the baseball playoffs, playoffs. The playoffs. That's right. And and how do I mean how do we know that six out of eight is good? We don't necessarily know that. We don't have a control I don't group. Think it's Thank that you. Good. You're doing exactly what I did. <laughs> which I, I, my my intuition is that it is pretty good. Yeah. Now, so that's all it is. Is is and a, my a intuition is that it's a harder exercise in baseball yes. because every year there are one or two teams that do come out of nowhere. Feels, Whereas in basketball, I think it's just that much easier of an operation. It feels, but but y'all predict. say that about baseball, but it feels a little bit like we've seen the same guys the last few this years. Is, this I mean, has it's been a funny the one. Same teams. Exactly. This is why this is one of this this year. If you go back in the beginning, we were there was so much weight on these on the eight teams that we predicted no. to make. Six out of eight. No, is... I'm, 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 let me also no, say the Nationals were the favorite. No. And we let didn't... me also just say yeah. it's not. Cubs? I mean, you could say six out of eight, but at the end of the day, Yankees, right. Red Sox, Astros. I'm not giving you any credit whatsoever. Are they Indians? <laughs> Indians and Dodgers. We thought these were locks, and this was unusual for baseball. Going back, I don't think that if you look back historically, we were that many teams yeah. that we were so confident we were going to make the playoffs. And and I, I will say the Cubs but, uh, yeah, and the Nationals, I, 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 we were equally confident about those two. Well, so, and I, 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 I think that says something back. more maybe about, I think, what's happened over the last couple years, for whatever reason, I think the sort of de- disparity, like right. the top variance. disparity, the disparity among teams has gotten a there little bit some. And, greater. It's, it feels that way. Um, because, maybe because the money teams finally got smart. Used to yeah, be smart exactly. Teams that's and maybe money that's teams, right. And now that's they're right. smart money teams. Yeah, right. that's right. I mean, the a- no one picked the A's No one picked the But also, we had these we had these tie-breaking games, and so it's not even quite right to say there are eight. There's kind of ten teams. Yeah. And so what's your percentage out of ten? You didn't have the Rockies. So now I know no. you're not any higher than seven. You might have been six. Who was the other team that got knocked out in the tiebreak? Well, the Cubs. The Cubs? Oh, or, you know, the, the Cubs, Cubs got knocked out. They got in the tiebreak. Okay, yep. so you had seven out of ten, basically. Yeah. All right. All right, fellas. This has been the first quarter. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. We just lost Audie Weiner. Audie had to step away to the classroom. We've all got a little classroom obligation here and there this fall, but we'll still be here. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Wish you would. The number one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 
or drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Great way to reach us if you're listening during one of the replays. But you can also catch us real time on email. We have responded to notes on the air. Follow us on Twitter. Add us on Twitter. Send us questions on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. We do an over-under segment at the end of most shows, and we take over-unders off of the Twitter feeds as well as any questions you got. We are rolling into the guest portion of the show. We have guests in the next half hour and then again at the top of the hour. In this half hour, Josh Hermsmeyer, I'm delighted to welcome to the show. Josh is a writer for 538. He's also the founder of airyards.com. He is a terrific follow on Twitter, at Frisco Josh. And he's been on the show before, but I wasn't here, so I'm delighted to talk to Josh for the first time. Josh, good morning to you. Hey, good to talk to you for the first time. Uh, total thrill and, and good to be back on the pod a second time, something I didn't think would happen. Thanks, man. Well, you, you, maybe I need to go back and listen to that first time again because did you <laughs> did you think you ran yourself off? We're glad to have you. Listen, man, I think you're calling in from the West Coast. Where are you calling in from? Uh, Pacific time. I'm up in northern Idaho, north Idaho, Coeur d'Alene area. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's early, but... Uh, you know, I, would, I wouldn't miss an opportunity, so this is great. Well, I appreciate it. Can, you know, you are definitely the first guest we've had from Coeur d'Alene. We've had them from pretty, you know, rural locations in Canada, but not Coeur d'Alene. So what, what took you to Idaho? <laughs> well, about uh, exactly a year ago, this, this past week, uh, the fire in Sonoma and Napa drove me uh, out, uh, burned down my entire neighborhood. And uh, so, you know, we had been kind of thinking about selling the land there and, and then kind of moving up here nearer to my, my family. And uh, that was the shove we eventually needed. And wow. uh, it's, it's beautiful up here. A lot of people don't really know just how pretty it is up here on the lake and uh, mm-hmm. um, could, couldn't be happier. Couldn't wow. Be happier. Wow. Well, that's making the best of a very bad situation. Can you give us a little bit of your background? Because there in the Sonoma Napa region starts giving the secret away. You were You were not always in the football analytics business, right? No, that's absolutely true. Uh, with the with the Davis, and I uh, studied knowledge of viticulture, and uh, also majored in in uh, economics. I think that's where I got the quantitative interest. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, we started a winery, built a, about a four thousand case brand, sold that in uh, twenty ten Pinot Noir winery in the Russian River Valley, mm-hmm. and uh, that was one of my passions. Obviously, for a long time, I still love wine and. Uh, um, my, my my technology company that I own now is uh, is wine adjacent, the food and beverage industry, and so I still keep my hand in. And okay. My business partner is John Jordan at Jordan Winery, so I get to go out to the wine country quite a bit and um, stay connected with that whole thing. Okay, how, when you're when you're a student at Davis, is like every other student trying to do wine. How does it work? <laughs> what do you mean, like? Uh, how do you, how do you learn it or no? Nah, like it, you, it's like you know when you're at Stanford, everyone wants to like start a new Stanford B school. Everyone wants to start a new you know internet company uh, or whatever. And you know, different schools have this kind of it's kind of in the water, and everyone's kind of doing. It. Is that what it's like to be at Davis? I mean, it's ag more generally, but is wine? Is it competitive to get these spots? Is the training like off the charts? This is we don't need to go very far down this road, but I'm just curious. Sure. Yeah. No, I think it's more uh, along the lines of. Uh, maybe training to become an investment banker or uh, a lawyer where there's you're trying to line yourself up for the best job there's not a startup atmosphere like stanford so that's kind of where i had a, a little bit of a leg up is that i knew i was going to start my own winery as soon as i was done um and and that i had uh, uh, some investment capital to do that and so 
you know, I was always looking at it from a marketing point of view. How was I going to differentiate myself? How was I going to uh, stand out in the marketplace? And one of the ways I did that was uh, I actually started uh, – social media was new at the time. Uh, this was in the early 2000s, and I blogged the birth of the winery, like all the regulatory hurdles and how do you build a thing and, you know, what – you know, what, what is it like during harvest and what's it like during production? And, and so that I was able, by the time the wine had aged and was ready for sale, I had a following and was able to sell out near one. Wow. So the way you've just described that maps so well onto the work that you're doing in football analytics, it seems to me. So it's not it's different substance, but there's still this interface and communication that is an important part of what you do. So that that's clearly one thing that transitions. How else did you get involved in analytics you say you're trained in economics but where does where does a winemaker start dabbling to the degree that you do so again we're going to get into some of the details but guys you you need to follow josh he's at frisco josh and it's just terrific analysis right on the cutting edge with football analytics and he's engaged you know very high in conversation in fact 538 just posts you so you're writing for 538 now because that's how good an analyst you are and that's how good a writer you are how did you get going in that direction I think uh, I was always interested in baseball uh, for the longest time. And, um, and so I cut my teeth um, in before, actually, I started uh, my, my technology company. I cut my teeth um, doing some, some sabermetrics. And one of my injury databases was incorporated ultimately into Pakoda. And so I was able to contribute. But I, I realized I didn't quite have the level of technical proficiency um, to actually leverage whatever statistical knowledge I had. Um, at the time, people were using R at the time, and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't well versed in it, and so I wasn't able to contribute in the way I wanted. And and so over the period of time where uh, I was building my technology company, when I finally came up for air, um, I really wanted to to learn that part of it, and I did. And uh, now I'm able to kind of use it in football, in a in a place where statistical analysis and <laughs> and the dearth of data has really been a a pretty. Uh, it's been something that's holding back kind of uh, the way we're. Uh, able to analyze the game and any insights we can provide. You might even say it's been holding back the way we think about the game to some extent. I'm curious, as, yeah, you've, as you've dived into this world, how, how, what do you think people are getting wrong? If you were to say, here's the top of the list, that I think people need to think about football differently. One, two, three. What are the most important things that you think people need to revise in the way they're thinking about it? Well, I mean, you and and the folks you've worked with your career have really moved the needle a huge amount. And, and so I would certainly say, you know, understanding the draft better. And I think that, that the fact that that's changed gave me a lot of hope when I first started uh, coming into this, that, that there was actually <laughs> there were some some uh, uh, some ears out there uh, that were built to listen. But I think uh, just this year, some of the things uh, that just still perplex me, but perhaps are changing are this this idea that we need to uh, you know establish the run even when the defense looks like it's prepared to counter that and uh, mm-hmm. deception such a huge part of football and to think that you know you're just going to line up and smash yourself into other 300 pound humans and, and think you're going to you know have an, a, a high expected value on those type of plays it seems to me strange um, but it, it does appear that the NFL as a league, uh, at least early on, is, is passing more in those early down situations against stacked boxes uh, mm-hmm. and audibling more using the run pass option. So that's great. Um, the other thing, uh, I don't more of a just kind of operational point of view, kind of, you know, this operations research aspect, which is just we I think NFL decision makers um, don't understand suck costs perhaps as much as they should and they don't move on as early as they should and, and, and go to the probably the more uh, um, high probability winning play in, in terms of moving on from 
um, a player or moving on from a coach uh, soon enough. I is there, so is there a recent think. example that has your eye on that front? <laughs> yeah, definitely the Jameis Winston and, and, and Ryan Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really thought that uh, it was a slam dunk that as soon as Winston was healthy, that you just moved to him, and you don't you don't wait for for the uh, you know the obvious regression to occur for Fitzpatrick on the field. You just take him off, <laughs> you know, and say, "Well done, good sir," and, and move on to the better player. It's like you, you you're so sure he's going to regress, you just want to get out in front of it, basically. And people just don't do that. By the way, Eric Bradlow, our co-host here, is a is not just a Bucks fan. He he has tickets and he goes to games from way up here, so he's got a position on this. Yeah. So, Josh, I wanted to ask you a question about this, and then I have another one following up Cade's earlier question about what people get wrong. Here's the way I saw it, and please correct me if I'm wrong. So, Winston obviously had been away from the team. Uh, as you know, the Bucks. the only game he could have played, which he didn't, started was the Bears game. They then had a bye week. So what was wrong with the logic of give him two full weeks of practice with the starting team, bring him back game five, which turns out to be this week. He It was a short week because the Bucks had played on Monday night against the Steelers. So... Uh, that was my logic, but by the way, I've read your article, and I, and as a matter of fact, I completely agree. By any measure, Jameis Winston's a better quarterback than Ryan Fitzpatrick. But even then, what would have been the argument against just starting Fitzpatrick one more game? Sure, and and I think that's probably the most reasonable argument. But everything I read in the lead up to the week was that Jameis had been busting his tail working with receivers off on a side field somewhere because he couldn't actually be with the team and they had walkie-talkies. Is this, is this correct? Am I, am Abs- I it's all of it's correct, yes. Yeah, and like, so the, he actually eventually did come onto the field in an incredibly adverse situation. I think he had an 80% completion percentage, had a couple weird picks. One of them was a balloon ball while he was getting hit. I mean, he performed really, really well in, in a terrible situation. And had he come in at the beginning, perhaps that game wouldn't have gone the way it did and. And I think, you know, um, I think there's probably some political aspects to it as well. And, uh, and, I, and, and, and managing, managing men like that is, is, has its own set of challenges. You can't always go by the numbers, and I recognize that. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, I think they would have put themselves – they wouldn't have had to take an automatic loss, in my opinion. Uh, like they did in that game um, by starting Ryan Fitzgerald. The the ones uh, question, yeah, Fitzpatrick. The one question I was going to ask you about, which I thought you might mention, given the big uh, news article it was this week about the Cowboys not going for it, was this teams continually not going for it on fourth and one, especially forget in certain situations, but this is one where if you get this, the game is over. And so, have you looked at all about this? Well, we can't go for it on fourth and one mentality when they really should i actually i, I kind of seems to me like that settled science for the most part um i mean there's even a fourth down bot on newyorktimes.com and and you know lots of smart people have looked at this and and the data is really really clear and and in that position you, you just you have to go for it and the fact that he didn't and the fact that the organization although it sounded like perhaps that jerry jones was saying we need to be more aggressive but i i don't quite know how to parse his statements but it certainly seems like that organization is enabling a conservative mindset in every aspect of their game planning on offense, and uh, and it certainly uh, bled through on that fourth down call. Which um, you know, if they had any familiarity with the numbers, they had a guy up in a booth with a walkie-talkie would have told them 
Got to go for it here. And let's also remember the Cowboys have a fairly decent running back and offensive <laughs> line. It's too. the best offensive line in the league. The best offensive line in football, and maybe the best, and certainly the best running back in football. Matter of fact, not only in yards before being, I looked at, yeah. I saw the stat last week. He has the highest number of yards per carry before being touched. And after being touched, <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, I feel like you, you to go against the kind of the the the, the prevailing data and, and and analysis on fourth and one, you have to argue some kind of context to that specific situation that was more adverse to Dallas. But I mean, all the context I can come up with, if if, if anything, make it more favorable towards Dallas. So I mean, he was a first round running back. I mean, if you're going to take a running back in the first round, the top. You use them on fourth and one, I would think. Right. We're talking to Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is a football analytics writer. He can find his work on airyards.com or with 538. This year he's writing on 538. You can also follow him on Twitter at Frisco Josh. Josh, you're you're trying to integrate some of the traditional analytics with some of the chart data that's more available now than it ever has been. Where do you see that going? What's the advantage of working with chart data? What are some things you've learned by diving into those data? Really interesting stuff. Like I, I expected to find that things like yards per attempt and completion percentage adjusted for depth would be affected by things like single high safety versus two deep. Things that are kind of fundamental to how a quarterback makes his read and the way offensive uh, coordinator game plan. Um, and uh, I just didn't find any real difference there, any any significant difference. And I thought that was super interesting. What I did find was um, a big contextual factor that needs to be accounted for in any analysis moving forward is the number of men in the box and and so i think uh it, it's it's something that just needs to be added it's just so important um that kind of like depth of target that if you don't have it um you're missing something huge about football something fundamental and so those were those were interesting and i think uh at least from my point of view they kind of changed the way i thought about football analysis and i i think there's more to be done tons more to be done um, especially with this next-gen stats, which I'm hoping to get my hands on through ESPN uh, via 538 at some point uh, and kind of take a look at that stuff. Well, I want to hear more about that, but let me just for a moment talk about the number of men in the box. So you're you're saying that in order to understand how a team's performing, you, you know, we always condition for various situations, and you're saying, and here's another very important situational factor, how many guys are in the box. So if they're trying to run on seven guys, we should be considering that when we're evaluating their performance. Is, is that right? That's correct. And, and it also affects passing, obviously, because, uh, you know, if you're dropping more guys or, or you're stationing them off the line of scrimmage, um, you know, it makes it easier for them to uh, play the pass. I mean, these are pretty fundamental concepts to football, but it's, it's heartening that that, that that signal comes through in a way that is both predictive and descriptive of, uh, of game situations and outcomes. Josh, it reminds me a little of a conversation we had with Brian Burke, speaking of ESPN, just a couple of weeks ago, where that's an important part of the story. But we, if you just condition for it, then you're missing an important part of the story, which is the thing you've been on about, which is how often do people run into those boxes? Or if it's a light box, how often do well, they my, not pass? Josh, I've always wanted to get your opinion on something. So I've always said the best situation in football, the best situation in football is scoring a touchdown. But other than that, um, I love third and ones, and here's the reason I love them. Because the defense is probably thinking, I'm going to stack the box because they're going to run. But that's exactly when I want to pass because I know, as if I was a coach, I'm going for it on fourth down anyway. So to me, have you ever thought, given your economics training, about the game theory that goes on about this? Like, I want them to stack the box on a situation where I know I have a second play that could possibly, in some sense, succeed anyway. 
Absolutely agree with that. And, you know, if you're already committing to the fourth down play, um, I think it's a wonderful strategy. It's the same kind of logic that goes into second and one, second and short. Um, and then there's another aspect to it is that most of the time the box stacking is just matching the personnel. You bring heavy on the field, they're going to match, mm-hmm. and then you run off that uh, or you pass off that depending on if the gaps look good and all the rest. You know, uh, I think, though, that uh, you know, that idea of deception is something that someone like Sean McVay and just you know, window dressing, he called it uh, – making something very uh, uh, basic look complex mm-hmm. um, you know and and I think that, that that deception that aspect of deception in football is probably the most important at the NFL level and uh, and I think not enough OCs really take that into account on a play-to-play level how, how can you imagine evaluating teams on their ability to do that so it's it's this whole thing about do they it's not just conditioning for the situation they ran into or passed into but did they respond appropriately to the situation? Or better yet, did they help create the situation they wanted before they took the action? So this, I love what you're saying. It's just that we need to go one step further in order to really have the whole picture, right? I think, I think that's right. Yeah. But it's tough to, that's, it's tough to do. And then you can, I mean, look, I, I hate it when people do this to analysts. It's like, but what about this? And what about that? But here's a great example. A great example was the Penn State, Ohio State game a couple, do you do college football at all? I know you're on the West coast, but maybe a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I go back and I watch games after the fact to prepare for the draft, but that's about it. Okay. So there's this team out here, Ohio State, and there's another another team, Penn State, and they played a really big game a couple weeks ago. And sure. it came down at the very end to a fourth down, and McSorley, the quarterback for Penn State, who had just dominated the game, he was clearly a guy who needed the ball, and it's just one of the worst calls you've ever seen. They handed the ball off into a, a, a stacked box, and mm. that was the end of the game. And they took a lot of flack for going away from what had been working so well. So this is another thing. This I, I, Again, I'm apologizing a little bit, but it does seem like important context. You've got Here's another piece of context. Like How have they been doing over the course of the game? If, if McSorley has been the tool, do you really go away from him? Even if the other team's expecting it. They've been expecting it for the last at least two quarters. And they, mm-hmm. and they really kind of – Josh, they, they called timeouts. Like Ohio State called a timeout, and then they came back to the line of scrimmage. And then Penn State called a timeout. It was they were trying to do this game-theoretic thing that Eric just suggested, but they kind of overdid it. They overthought it. They thought themselves out of the right play, basically. I saw something similar with the Broncos um, where they were near the goal line where we all know that rushing is a lot more successful because of the compressed field. And that one other interesting thing I found with the, with the charting data is actually the power running in those situations is, is it's not an absolute lock, um, but, but it is, it is lean power. In other words, don't, don't do outside zone or inside zone right. um, when you're on the goal line. You know, you want, you want, um, you, you want force at the point of attack. You want an extra man. So anyway, they, they tossed to the outside. They just got too cute. Yeah. And and Royce Freeman somehow broke three tackles. Like it was ridiculous. The tackling was so <laughs> terrible. And he scored a touchdown. And I thought, no, you can't reward that bad play. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, it, we're we're in tricky territory though because we're saying two things at the same time. We're saying we're saying, you know, some game theory, some deception, but then we're also saying don't get too cute. I mean, how, yeah, I how, how do we reconcile that? That is a very tough balance, I think, in practice to maintain. I think it's the same with business. You want to be different, but not too different. Um, you, you don't, it's like bluffing. You want to bluff just enough so that there's uncertainty about your true, your true intent. 
Um, so you don't want to move too far off optimal. And, uh, um, so, so, and yeah, I mean, I, I think people have looked at this in, in a number of different ways mathematically. But uh, but how do we know, there, do it a, in, in football analytics? So you know, uh, you know, another another version of this is you watch these teams. I mean, te- you can get frustrated with Texas running these little inside kind of dive almost plays, and they don't get that much yardage. But then they set up this kind of counter to that, which breaks a big play. It's almost as if we can't, we shouldn't be evaluating these. We, we're, we're cutting it too narrow if we look only on a play-by-play basis. We have to look at it as a portfolio in some sense. But that, it takes, that takes restraint because you want to evaluate it on a play. But this is a real, I think this is a real challenge for analytics going forward. Yeah, I agree with that. And, I, and one of the things I've been working on is trying to automatically classify plays according to their passing concept. I, I haven't gotten as much into the running part, but but understanding the concept and then being able to look at them across a game and perhaps how uh, the offensive coordinator runs other plays off of those concepts. Uh, right. and you, can kind of, you can kind of get an idea of the deception there or at least a small part of the signal. That's interesting. And I think that, that might be useful. Okay. So that's something that I would love to hear much more, but we're going we're gonna to run out of time. In just you know half a minute or something, can you tell us what, what you're working on next? What has your attention right now? What do you find hard and interesting? Yeah, right now we're in the middle of the season, and uh, um, I, I think that uh, passing concept uh, uh, work is going to be a, a, big, a big chunk of my offseason when, uh, uh, when it finally comes. And I also want to finish up uh, writing just a, a basic book on football analytics that I've been working on uh, that's on airyards.com. Um, so those are the two things other than just uh, my work with uh, betting and fantasy kind of stuff during the in-season and trying to predict which uh, which wide receivers will actually go off in a particular week. So those are the things that are holding my interest currently. Terrific. Well, we'll do a whole show on Julio Jones next time we have you around. <laughs> <laughs> that's an easy <laughs> prediction. One of your favorite topics. <laughs> oh, no. Um, all right. No. That's been Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh, very much appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Wish you the best with the work that you're doing. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, everyone. It was a, just a thrill. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Josh Hermsmeyer, you can follow him on at Frisco Josh, or you can read his work on at AirYards. Air <laughs> Air at AirYards. Not at. AirYards.com is his website. But he's also writing for 538. Chase him down on 538. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, coming to you from the Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Huntsman Hall. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. We had Adi for a little bit this morning. He's gone now. Just off the phone with Josh Hermsmeyer talking football analytics. That guy's good. Yeah. He's a good analyst. He's a good writer. He's a good thinker. I think it, that, that he's like the future of football analytics because he's bringing together chart data and analytics, and he's thinking about it in multiple steps. And the topic you guys discussed about this I'm, sort of like highlight, like like trying to kind of go down this rabbit hole of strategy and, yeah, right. and stuff like that is where, where we play. need to go. It just is such a difficult exercise. I, and I love hard. the idea of the value of a play is not just its play, but even adding uncertainty, which can value other plays. I really like that line of thinking. Yeah, I mean, really, we shouldn't. The game is probably the right unit of analysis. 
analysis. Correct. And we get caught up in play, one play, this play, and look, man, the guy's trying to coordinate. I mean, we the whole spent game. an hour on baseball, and right, think about think about the times we always said, even if this power hitter just once bunted into the shift. Think about how much uncertainty that would add for the next time someone mm-hmm. does a shift. I mean, we said this in baseball yeah. all the time. Or if the guy mm-hmm. just slapped one down the left field line instead of just pulling into the, you know. I mean, just, we say it like it's easy, but I mean, I, I no, agree, if actually. if one could yeah. do it, yeah. it adds uncertainty, which, mm-hmm. all right, so the other 90% yeah. of the time, do what you're doing, but you've added the expected value for the majority of your plays by doing right. something that's suboptimal, maybe, on a small set of plays. Right. Well, speaking of baseball, we have another guest in this half hour. Rob Nyer is going to be joining us. Rob, longtime baseball writer, one of the pioneers, one of the true pioneers in baseball analytics. Right now, he is doing this new thing. I hadn't even known until this week. He's commissioner for the West Coast League out there. I want to hear about that. But importantly, also, he has a new book coming out. He, Rob's author of six or seven books already, but he has a new one coming out like today, maybe this week. Yesterday, released, it's called Powerball. The Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game by Rob Nye. Rob, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. I, I was just on my, my, my way home from Starbucks and uh, turned my radio on, and it was uh, Clay Travis dispensing life advice. So this is a welcome, welcome uh, <laughs> change in pace at, at best. We can do some life advice if that's what you need, Rob. We, I don't. That's my point. <laughs> Don't need it from the radio. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, come on. We're we're asking. We're going to ask you. We we think that this is a little bit about life. You're are where are you calling in from today? I'm in Portland, Oregon. All right. So you live in Portland, right? Yep. Um, originally Kansas City boy, but been out there for a little while. Um, Rob, let's get a little bit of background on you. I think of you. I was I was I was pimping you today as like the original Bill James Lieutenant, like Bill James Lieutenant number one. So you're kind of like n- second guy in on the baseball analytics world. I'm, that's probably a little bit of exaggeration, but there's some truth to it. Yes. Well, I yeah, I was uh, actually Bill's second full time uh, research assistant. Uh, in fact, his first is a, is a very good friend of mine, Jim Baker. Okay. Um, Jim was with Bill for a couple of years, and I was with Bill later for four years. I did miss the baseball abstract period. Um, I joined Bill shortly after he stopped writing the baseball abstract, but he he was still writing books, just different different sorts of books. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I was right in the middle of all that. And of course, I before that, I had been a huge fan of Bill's. That when I was in college, if you had asked me almost every day. When I was in college, you had said to me, Rob, what, what if you could just, and I, by the way, I had no real uh, life plan, speaking of Clay Travis, or ambition. <laughs> um, that said, if you had asked me at any point in those four years, um, Rob, if you could have one job in the world, what would it be? I probably would have said, work for Bill James, and wow. then it happened. So wow. I, I was incredibly fortunate to spend uh, that time with Bill, and um Everything since has has been a result of that. So, so you know, Bill, Bill's in Bill's in what Manhattan or Lawrence? He's in Lawrence. Lawrence. So, yep. was your being close to him geographically part of the way you were connected? How did that happen? Absolutely. Um, I, I'm ninety eight percent sure I wouldn't have gotten the job if we hadn't been close. I was in Lawrence going to KU. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, actually, by the time I hooked up with Bill, I, I was not going to KU, but I was still in Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Bill lived at that time about 45 miles, a small town about 45 miles north of Lawrence, but um, he wound up uh, renting an office space sort of midway between between us. So we would we would meet in a little town called 
uh, Oskaloosa, Kansas, every morning um, or afternoon, depending on how late he'd been up the night before working, and and uh, and uh, we'd get to it. So how do you how do you learn from a guy like Bill James? There's a there's a part of Bill that just feels you know uniquely genius that you can't quite pass along a way of thinking and seeing things as clearly as he does. What do you think you picked up from him? It is absolutely true that that it, it, there's it, it's you, you don't just hang out with Bill and become Bill. Mm-hmm. You you don't. My brain doesn't work the same way that Bill's does. Right. What I learned from Bill before I even worked for him, but then especially after I worked for him and was really immersed was was the, the basic I think impulse was not to accept what you're being told. Mm-hmm. It really, for me, came down to that because, uh, and I, you know, one of the uh, salient points of my entire life, I, I'll never forget it. I, I, I walked into the uh, KU bookstore. Um, maybe it might have been my my very probably my very first week on campus, and went straight to the baseball book section. And, and I'd never heard of Bill James. I went straight to the baseball book section. Uh, which was small. It was a university library. And I saw this book, the 1984 Bill James Baseball Abstract. Mm -hmm. And I picked it up and probably looked at the back cover, opened opened the book, and I realized almost immediately that this was something that I'd never seen before and that I wanted it. I really Mm -hmm. wanted it. Mm -hmm. So I bought the book, took it back to my apartment, probably read the entire thing within a couple of days. I mean, it was just one of those moments that we all have in our lives, probably, that we're, nothing is the same afterward. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what I picked up from Bill. What I never did pick up was Bill's way to see things in a different way. Right. Um, I'm really good at questioning what I'm being told. I'm not really all that great at, and never have been at coming up with a new way, a new paradigm, a new way of looking at a at an issue, and, mm-hmm. and, and very few people have that, and that's what makes Bill Bill. He, mm-hmm. just, he sees the world in a slightly different way than the rest of us, or the, most of the rest of us, and that's that's really, I think, been the key to his his career. So w- one more question, Bill, just because it, it's waiting there before we shift to hear more about your work, but how does it work when the world changes so much? Like Bill's changed the world. Now many people are thinking like he does and see the world like he does. Now, how does this different perspective, how does it play, or how does he find it? I don't, you know what, the funny thing is, I don't know that people do see the world in a different way. I think people see little bits of the world in different ways. Um, I think most of us tend to be stuck in a general way with all our same cognitive biases that we've always had. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. been a thing that, that the cognitive biases, that, that has become a, an area of study just in the last, I don't know, I, I'm sure it's been around forever, but it's really become popular, at least uh, on the publishing side and the popular side in the last 10, 15 years, I suppose. Right. Um, and we're still ruled, for the most part, by our cognitive biases. Uh, uh, look at, I hate to, I hate to cast the, uh, the discussion in a negative way, but, but uh, look, at, look at not only Americans, but the world's... Uh, response to uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't figure it out. We can't figure out what to do about it. We can't get together and solve this thing. And that's due to our cognitive biases. And it doesn't matter if you're, if you're, uh, how many Bill James books you've read. 
you're probably still not able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that Bill has had a huge impact in a lot of ways, but they, they, I don't know that he's changed the world. Um, I think he's changed little bits of it. Mm-hmm. Certainly baseball wouldn't be the same without Bill James. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so you worked with Bill for a little while. You wrote for um, ESPN for a good long stretch, and yep. you even were the baseball were the baseball editor for SB Nation for a little while. The most recent thing you're doing, I uh, want to hear a little bit about, which is the commissioner of the West Coast League. First, can you tell us what the West Coast League is, and then how did you end up the commissioner of this thing? Well, the, the West Coast League is essentially the, the uh, uh, Pacific Northwest equivalent of the Cape Cod League, okay. which I'm sure everybody listening is familiar with um the cape the cape league does get the the better prospects than we do typically older older players we tend to have a lot of freshmen and sophomores um in our league or um and the cape tends to get the very best prospects uh, for a lot of reasons but um and then the northwood league is another big one um in the upper midwest they're they're very successful and 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 there there are the, the the number of leagues has exploded in the last ten years. It's become if you are a college player with with professional aspirations, you want to play in one of these leagues. Okay. Um, and uh, as far as how I got the job, I the league was casting about for for a new commissioner last winter. I, I happened to be giving a a, a speech or a, a talk at a baseball banquet here in Portland, and uh, the. Um, the person who runs the Corvallis Knights, who are sort of the New York Yankees of our league, okay. happened to be in the audience and thought it might be a good fit. And a couple months later, here I was. Wow. So what are your responsibilities as commissioner out there? Uh, it, it really is as big a job as I have time to make it. Um, uh, formerly, um, I was basically brought aboard to uh, mediate disputes and make rulings on suspensions and um, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody has to do that. Mm-hmm. When a manager gets kicked out and stays on the field and argues for, for, for too long um, or prolongs the argument, as the rule book says, uh, somebody has to decide what happens next. Okay. That's, my, that's one of my jobs. Okay. That sounds like fun. I mean, we've been listening to commissioners make those decisions for our entire lives as we've watched baseball or football or whatever, and now well, you get to be the decision maker? Yeah, it's, I do not like playing God. That's actually no. the least enjoyable part of the job. Okay. I also got to, uh, uh, this, this last summer, uh, put together the all-star teams. I got to hand out the championship trophy. Mm. Uh, I got to uh, visit all 11 ballparks in our league, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to put on a mascot's costume and sweat for an <laughs> inning uh, during the all-star game. That was amazing. So I have gotten to do all of the uh, throw out. I got to throw out the first pitch a couple of times. Oh, all yeah. these things I never thought I would get to do. Yeah, that's um, fun. And I did them all in like the space of two months. So it that it, it was an, a tremendous experience. But the disciplinary part that is no fun. Yeah. Okay. So, that does so, sound like less fun than visiting the parks. <laughs> yeah. So Rob, this is Eric Brown. I wanted to ask you: Have can you talk to us about has your analytics knowledge and work? intersected with your commissioner job do you for example when you evaluate how severe something is do you say wow let me look at the distribution of bad things people did and see how extreme this is <laughs> when you do you sh- encourage the teams to be more analytics in their thinking and you know share data with teams or h- how ha- have the two intersected at all not a lot yet um i think uh being my first 
year, first season on the job. Uh, there were a lot of things that I sort of had to learn how to do first, um, establish relationships. Again, visit all the ballparks, uh, get to know everybody, all the GMs, all the head coaches. Um, uh, it, you know, when it came to the suspensions, I, I, wouldn't, I don't know if – I wasn't using numbers, but what I did do – and. and I think it's important, um, and I, this comes up all the time when I talk about Major League Baseball teams and analytics. It really isn't about the numbers per se. The numbers are just a part of what we or what, what teams are doing. It, it all falls under the heading of the, the, the broader heading of information. Mm-hmm. Baseball teams crave information, and that is often, yes, numbers, but it's also scouting reports. It's also talking to someone who knew this kid four years ago when he played for a different team. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it all falls under that, that heading, and not just data, or I should say not just numbers. Right. Um, and when I uh, was faced with the decision um, whether to suspend a coach or not suspend them, or whether to suspend them for two games or four games, I wanted as much information as I could reasonably collect within a 24-hour period. And that might mean uh, going back and looking at old suspension reports. It might mean uh, calling, uh, getting a two or three people on the phone who are actually on the field because we don't have we have video for most of these things. But we don't have great video, so right. you you know you have to you collect what information you can collect, and then you make your decision, and you you live with it, and you hope everybody else can live with it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as far as by the way, I, I, as far as uh, actual data, one of the things that we would love to be and aren't yet is the uh, analytics data friendliest summer collegiate league. Oh wow! Um, and we're just getting there. We we had uh, we had the um, Statcast data in one of our ballparks last season, and we really hope to expand, have more uh, next year, yep. um, along with various other uh, things. There's so many opportunities out there, and you sort of have to pick and choose can you i mean you guys got a bunch of tech folks out there in that part of the world couldn't you go get sponsorship from a microsoft or yes. one of those guys <laughs> one of our owners actually isn't a retired microsoft exactly. executive and he's very much <laughs> he's a new owner and he's very much on board with that sort of thing um what you and i think this is this is true in in every enterprise it's it's all of these things in the abstract makes sense. Why would you not do that? Right, right. But exactly. then you you run into the the stark reality of the day to day operation. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm just speaking as a hypothetical owner. We would love to have uh, the pitch FX stuff in our ballpark. We would love to have, um, you know, this uh, really sweet app that people can download and then have uh, all the concessions stuff delivered to their seats. Oh, but guess what? Uh, I have a three-man staff or three-person staff. We have a lot of tremendous women working in our league. Three-person staff. And you know what my first priority is? It's going out and selling uh, sponsorships for next season or we're going to lose money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody has to prioritize. And and we do have fairly small staff um, who work their butts off. So um, there are a lot of things we could be doing. Um, I'm just hoping we can get one or two initiatives ramped up next season we're not going to do all six that i would love to do but yeah. if we can do one or two i'll be happy got it we're talking to rob nyer rob is a longtime baseball analyst and writer you can follow him on twitter at rob nyer that's n-e-y-e-r he's also 
producing a new book. He just authored a book that was released yesterday called Powerball, The Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. And it's it's a play on word there with game. It's not just the sport writ large, but also an individual game. So can you tell us a little bit about this book, Rob? In reading it, it sounds like it follows a bit of a tradition in baseball writing. It's a unique little tradition, but it's, a interesting, it's an interesting conceit for a book. Yes. The idea is, um, as you know, to <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> use a single baseball game. And this has been done in other sports as well, by the way. Um, uh, use a single game as the lens through which to, to view the sport as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, first of all, I should, you know, it wasn't, it's not an original idea, obviously. Uh, it was done back in the mid-1950s by mm-hmm. a great book called The Day in the Bleachers, written mm-hmm. by Arnold Haino, who's still alive, by the way, still right. enthusiastic, still loves to talk about uh, the book. That's great. Um, <clears throat> at 95. Um, wow. And then uh, 30 years later, exactly 30 years later, um, uh, Dan Okrent, who's a, 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 an acquaintance of mine, wrote a book called Nine Innings, which remains a classic in the literature. I loved it when it came out. Mm-hmm. I've read it two or three times since then. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, last fall, uh, an editor, my editor, Eric Nelson, came to me and said, Rob, I would love for someone to write a modern version of Nine Innings, and mm-hmm. uh, are you interested? And I, I was, of course, interested. I mean, this is—I love being a part of this tradition. Um, I, I'd actually had a couple of book ideas that hadn't sold, so I was eager to, to ah. do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything just sort of fell into place. So, how did you choose? This seems like an obscure game to have chosen. You chose a September game against the Astros, who would go on to win the everything against the A's, who didn't even make the playoffs. Well, we, we, I wanted a game that epitomized the modern game with lots of homers, lots of strikeouts. Mm-hmm. Didn't quite get that. Didn't have the strikeouts. It turned out it was impossible to find the, the perfect game. Mm-hmm. Um, but you only need one strikeout to write about strikeouts. So it wasn't a, big, it wasn't <laughs> okay. a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted a game with some drama, and this game had some, some real back and forth, score-wise, with a dramatic ending. Not that that's the point of the book. You know, nobody really cares how a game in September right. Uh, but ends, but it does have some drama. Mm-hmm. And um, most of all, I wanted two interesting teams, two interesting franchises. Mm-hmm. And with the Astros, obviously we had that. Now we chose this game before they won, uh, won the World Series. Oh, is that but, right? Okay. But but we did know they were going to the playoffs because right. we chose the game in, in late September. Um, and, of course, the the Astros as well as anybody, epitomize what I call in the book postmodern baseball. Um, they use all the analytical tools at their disposal. They have a huge analytical staff, or analytic staff. And, of course, and you have the A's, uh, who are still overseen by Billy Bean, um, just as they were 15 years earlier when the book Moneyball came out. Mm-hmm. So that obviously gave me an entree to talk about that, the Moneyball legacy, mm-hmm. um, and Billy Bean's legacy and, and, and everything that came along with that. So um, I, I think that, uh, and by the way, my editor was a big help too. He, that was, he gave me a list of two, three or four games to choose from because mm-hmm. I was having a tough time cho- picking, mm-hmm. finding mm-hmm. the right game, and, and that's the one I chose. Rob, to what extent did you come to the book knowing the three or four or 25 things you wanted to say about modern baseball versus <laughs> working through it, you came across some new insights that you wanted to emphasize? Um, it's a good question. I, I think it's 
probably around 50-50. I think if, if I made a list without even knowing what the game was, it, I probably would have had about half those topics. And it is something like 25. I actually had a, I kept a spreadsheet. What, <laughs> what am I writing about? Right. How do I work this idea? Sure. Yes, and okay. it wound up being, I think, around 25. And I could have gone to 50. Oh, wow. I mean, even okay. now, I'll think, oh, why didn't I get that into the book? But right. um, uh, I had to stop at some point. But, and then um, once we had chosen the game um, and I watched it, um, then I started, I think my initial outline before choosing the game, I had a dozen or so topics that I definitely wanted to write about. And then after watching and listening to the game multiple times, I had expanded that by mm-hmm. about, you know, I basically doubled that list of topics. And to some degree, as you know, it winds up being sort of a series of, of short essays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think I wrote about infield shifting probably about as long as anything else in the book, and that runs for about, I don't know, three or four pages, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a little bit longer. But that's, that's really about as long as it gets. And I hope that it, you know, the, the idea is that you don't, get, you don't get bogged down in too many details, mm-hmm. and the, the game flows to some degree. You know, it, it, there was no, I, I couldn't figure out a way to make the game feel like, uh, you know, pit, we're not going to go pitch by pitch. It would just be too intrusive. But you also don't ever want to lose the thread of the game and forget you're actually watching a game. The the idea is that you and I are sitting at a game or watching a game on TV at a bar or whatever it is, and and uh, and we're having a conversation. Now it's one sided, unfortunately. <laughs> That's the nature of, of writing a book. But the idea is that we're just having a fun chat about this baseball game. We're Rob, you know it's amazing how well that comes across. And to be honest with you, it didn't strike me that way as I'm diving into the book. But as you were just kind of telling me how you were going about it, I'm thinking, you know, it's frankly like being at a baseball game. And it's, <laughs> it's both the, you know, the upside, the downside of baseball that you can basically have a three hour conversation occasionally interrupted by some sport, right. you know, but the good thing is you can have a three hour conversation with a buddy or a family member. So it Rob, is, let me, it, yeah, it, let me just ask one of my complaints about modern baseball, which I don't raise in the book because you, know, you don't want to sound like a fuddy duddy, but you literally can go to a game now and it's, it's, if you're sitting in the wrong spot, especially, it's 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 difficult to talk to the person sitting next to you uh, because the decibels are so so great yeah. the, on the speaker system, which to me just to sort of defeats the purpose of being in the ballpark or one of them anyway, which is to to have a, a, a pleasant conversation with you with 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 whoever you're sitting with with the occasional crack of the bat. Mm-hmm. Just exactly. that, 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 that soundscape, you bet. Yep. So, Rob, this is Eric Bradlow again. You were just talking about the shift as one example. Do you ever see a day where, I mean, I say this with both uh, concern but also enjoyment, and also your role as a commissioner of a league, where analytics kind of destroys the game to a degree that it affects the business of the game? Absolutely. So, Okay, so how will you, as someone that now plays both roles, as someone that does analytics but as a commissioner, how will you weigh that balance? Like, imagine we get to a point where a team has literally every pitcher just pitches two batters. And imagine a game where we have the shift on every play. And so you can imagine from a fan's point of view, not that exciting. So how will you, how do you think about that balance? Yeah, and the context for that being something like, you know, I mean, the, the MLB commissioner has talked about, you know, I mean, kind of far-fetched, you know, plans of, like, enforcing that the fielders stand in certain, like, areas, etc. Well, the worst thing about that is that it is, <clears throat> it just happens to be about the only thing that they could probably get away with. It, it would also be, have almost zero impact on the actual statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the batters would do basically the same thing as they already do. The pitchers would throw exactly the same pitches, or almost exactly the same pitches. The, 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 the reason batting averages are, are down, the reason strikeouts are up, the reason home runs are up, is because the game has changed, the way the players play has changed. It isn't because of the, what the fielders are doing. Um, so I, I don't really put much stock in that. I hope it doesn't happen because it's just, it, 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 it gives people false hope that this is somehow going to turn things back to the way, turn the clock back 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I talk about that at the, at the end of the book. I talk about what analytics is doing to the game and potentially what it's doing to the business of the game. It's difficult to know what, what, if it's made any difference to this point, because we don't really have a control group, right? We don't have a Major League Baseball without analytics. Right. So we know that attendance is down. Um, I think most people don't believe it's because of analytics, uh, yeah. or right. if it is, it's just a tiny bit because of that. It's mostly because of higher ticket prices and various other things, and teams not trying to win every year. Um, but I, I do believe, and this is may well be the fan in me talking, uh, the fan who wants to see more balls in play, the fan who wants to see more stolen bases and triples and, and uh, shortstops making tremendous plays. But I, I, do, I do believe that if you, you, you get to a point where the game is even more and more about home runs, just home runs and strikeouts, um, I think you lose some fans. Mm-hmm. I think you lose yep. people. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I can't prove that. Um, and again, it might just be my own preferences talking, but um, I'm not convinced that that's what fans want to see. I, I think what they would rather see, or what I'd rather see for sure, is baseball players doing every game in, game out, a great variety of baseball things. Mm-hmm. We're losing that. Well, Rob, mm-hmm. here's what you can do with use your role as the commissioner of the West Coast League. Run a random... Do me a favor. This is the <laughs> Put this as the 80th thing on your list to do. <laughs> Run a randomized experiment for us, please, here at Wharton Moneyball, where you randomize the stat cast to certain stadiums on certain games. Let's collect the data and see if the game's played any differently. And then um, we'll we'll have you back on the show, and we can mm-hmm. analyze that data, and we'll have a good time understanding the role of analytics. Can you put that as the 80th idea. thing on your I list, please? This. Um, I, I'm not sure how much how how worthwhile my data would be, but and I make this point in the book too. Major League Baseball actually has a test bed already. They have the Atlantic League. They have a relationship with the Atlantic League, an independent league with a lot of really good players. With Statcast is probably in the ballparks or could easily be in all the ballparks, and they could actually run all these studies if they wanted to. And mm-hmm. what one of the things that bothers me bothers me about MLB is that they don't seem to have a great deal of interest in learning mm-hmm. um, in finding answers to all these questions because they have the ability mm-hmm. well, well look man we can run you for commissioner can't we Rob Manfred when, is his, when is his term I'm, up I'm ready I'll get, I'll get a yard sign going I got two months in in the West Coast. I'm ready for the. I'm ready for the majors. <laughs> You're ready for the big leagues. Yep. Okay, so tell us something. We've only got a couple of minutes. We we can whinge about the game a little bit, right? The noise and the and the preponderance of home runs and strikeouts. But what do you celebrate in this book? What are the and maybe some things that you might find yourself even more enthusiastic than you than before you wrote the book? Well, a couple of things. One, the, the diversity in the major leagues is tremendous. With players every year, players from more and more different places around the world, which, you know, we've lost a lot of variety in terms of the events on the field. 
we've gained so much variety in the, the, where the players come from mm-hmm. and the flavor they bring to the game. And mm-hmm. I think that finally baseball is going to embrace celebrations, uh, bat flips and things, and just to see players enjoying themselves. That's good for baseball. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fun to watch. I think that's coming. And the other thing that I, 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 I reappreciated while working on the book was just how unpredictable it still is. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this game featured, that I wrote about, featured one of the games at that point, one of the game's very best uh, relief pitchers, one of the best closers. And guess what happens to him in the ninth inning? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> as predictable, the game is much more predictable now than it was 20 years ago, but it's still incredibly unpredictable. Mm-hmm. You know, what we saw the other, just, just this week in the playoffs, the, the things, the events, It'll never be figured out. It, can never, it can't be figured out right. because you have human beings doing incredibly difficult things over and over and over again. And uh, there's always going to be a great deal of uncertainty. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think, uh, I hope people come away with an appreciation for that because that makes the games fun to watch, even if we think we know who's going to win. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Well, listen, Rob, enjoy the book. Um, wish you the best with the book and with the rest of your work. Really appreciate you taking the time oh, to be with us today. great being here. Thanks for having me. You bet. That was Rob Nyer. Rob is, among other things, commissioner of the West Coast League out there, but he's also a longtime baseball analytics and writer. He's got a new book. We could recommend it to you enthusiastically. The book is called Powerball, The Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. It was just released yesterday. Rob Nyer, robnyer.com or at Rob Nyer. That is three quarters of this week's Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Audie Weiner's out and about doing Audie Weiner things. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 942-7866 or email us businessradio at SiriusXM.com businessradio at SiriusXM.com or you can add us on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle up there at WMoneyBall send us questions send us over under suggestions um, or send us requests we have a request from a from an enthusiastic listener of ours Ron Yurko Ron is a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon he has put together and is helping host a sports analytics conference the week next week it's october 19 and 20 there in pittsburgh and um i know folks that are going there it looks like a strong conference the registration is still open uh you can find information they've got twitter accounts that are promoting this material at cmu underscore stats at cmu underscore stats cmu being carnegie mellon there's also at cmu analytics at cmu analytics great gathering up there conference and sports analytics conference and football analytics Ron Yurko, one of being being one of the organizers over there. We also had a question, guys. We had a question from one of our listeners on what's the most have you you and you might have an idea on this, Eric. What's the most, you know, minute detail that you've heard a team looking at analytically in search of an edge? Like to what links do they go analytically to find an edge? It's well, a Twitter question. Yeah, so I- I'll, maybe something will come to mind, but it always comes down to these, and we've talked about this on the show many times, comes down to these compound four statements like, this team has an edge when playing at home on night games when the other team has lost this many games. So just, it's when... You, Subsetting the data to such an extent that ex- like you basically 
will so, always find some sort of effect. But we, so we don't like that approach because we're killing the sample size in those things. But I think this question is more about to what lengths will, a, will an internal analytics group go to find an edge. So, for example, you know, teams look at they look at all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They, they're trying to write, big big things they're looking at is you know can you can you anticipate injuries better? Can you predict well, injuries? Well, is a craft better? service table gluten free? And well, is that going to give us the edge? That's the idea. Yeah. That kind of diet yeah. stuff, that diet stuff is on the table for sure. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. I'm very excited about the work that one of my colleagues, Michael Platt, who runs the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, is doing with uh, football teams now. Um, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that um, if all football players went through a CAT scan and one understood, let's call it, whether it's reaction times, but not using classic reaction time measures, or if you'd like, you know, um, the blood flow in somebody's brain. And, you know, I would imagine that that data is part of the future of science of football. I'm very excited about that data, and I know he's working with a lot of teams. And then, of course, once you have that data, let's call it the gold standard data, you can look at cheaper alternative measures that correlate with that, like Mm -hmm. things like wearable devices and other stuff. And I know that's what he's working on with Mm -hmm. teams, including, I know, the Cleveland Browns being one of them. Mm -hmm. I just find that fascinating and an interesting use of technology to get an edge. Well, one of the principles there is that a lot of that is about health and safety, but in general, analytics is like any edge. I mean, this is is you just want to stack up as many small edges. There aren't big edges available, so you want to get as many small edges as possible. and want to stack them up. All right, guys, let's move into a little bit of football. We've talked a lot of other sports so far today. We haven't talked football. Did y'all notice this game they played in Dallas last weekend, by any chance? Did anybody else follow this game? Wait, the Cowboys played in <laughs> Dallas last weekend? They played in Houston. Oh. I'm not talking about professional. Why would I be talking about professional football? Are you talking about uh, the, that Texas-Oklahoma game? Texas won a big game against Oklahoma. Yeah. They've won some recently. But Red this River Rivalry, like, right? Red River. They call it Red River a variety of things, but yeah. whatever. It's been around for a long time, and it was a big win for the Horns. They got yeah. up big. We were <clears> kind of comfortable and happy and smiling, and all looked well, and then that went away. And then they squeaked in with a field goal at the end. But it opens up to Big 12. Yeah, but, no, I mean, you must be very excited because, you know, I mean, we, we have – Prior to that game, but talking about Oklahoma as yeah. you know one of these kind of teams that's sort of in in that playoff well, conversation. Oh, well, for sure. Well, let me ask you: Does it open up the Big Twelve in the sense of yes? What you mean is maybe it's not obvious who's going to win the Big Twelve, but does it also open up the Big Twelve to not have anybody in the college football playoff, even mm-hmm. more so than before the game mm-hmm. happened? More so than before. Yeah, we dropped their probabilities. I could dig it up, but. Um, certainly, when you drop from the undefeated ranks, your chances of getting someone into the playoff. No, is, but on the other hand, small. now you could argue Texas Oklahoma also and has Texas. A shot. Right, I'm saying oh, Texas had to go up, of course. Oklahoma came down, but you're saying Oklahoma came down way yeah. farther than Texas uh, not, went up. Not way necessarily. I, you know, I, I will say this: we now put the chances of both the Pac-12 and the Big 12 missing the playoff at greater than 50%. So it's like 56% that both those conferences So is that both it, are out? Is, like, is a team like out. Notre Dame the real winner of that particular rivalry game? Well, that's No, what, UCF. <laughs> no, UCF is out of it this okay, year, unfortunately. It. But you're, that's the right way to think about it, Shane, that there's a set of teams that are in the running. There are generally going to be more teams than we have spots. And so anytime a contender gets knocked down a notch. Now, Oklahoma's not eliminated. Texas yeah. is still in the mix. West Virginia's undefeated, for God's sake. But anytime a serious contender like Oklahoma gets knocked down a notch, all the other serious contenders get a little more probability on it. Well, that. let me ask you another question. Let's imagine Ohio State were to lose a game. Yeah. Before the Big Ten championship game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you see a day where the Big Ten is out? 
Is that possible? Could the Big Ten be out this it year? Seems well. Anything's possible because you know if everybody runs the table, they're going to have a hard time giving a seat to a one-loss champion, even of a power like of a Power Five um, conference. But that's unlikely. So the thing about Ohio State losing again, they have to go to Michigan. They're going to play. They're going to play a bunch of not so impressive teams, but they have to play Michigan. Well, it's, you brought up an interesting team because Michigan. While there's a lot of ranked games this week, there is a Michigan's ranked. They have an interesting game against Wisconsin this week. Yeah. So I'm starting. I'm actually starting to a little bit to become a believer of Michigan. I think Michigan's going to beat Wisconsin this week. And then, you, as you pointed out, Kate, I didn't know that they were playing each other. I guess they would. That sets up a t- titanic clash between Michigan and Ohio State. Yeah, I mean, and that's to be fair. That's the last game of the regular season. That's a long way off. People have to play other teams between now and then. But that is a big game. It is in that's, Columbus. Would you agree that that's essentially an elimination game? It will, in it will all be. likelihood, be an elimination, yeah. an elimination game. But see, people have kind of slept on Michigan since they dropped that week one game against Notre Dame. We've never dropped them out of our top ten. We have them number five for a couple weeks running now. And, in fact, if they played they played Ohio State on a neutral field right now, we'd make it about a four-point game. Of course, they're going to be in Columbus. So right now we make that game to be about a seven. Point. Oh, the game's in Columbus. The game is in Columbus. But Michigan's very, I mean, Michigan's legit. They could run the table easily. So uh, we, what I what I like to say at this point in the season is this inevitable kind of chalky, going to be Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, and Clemson thing is much less inevitable than people think. I mean, even Alabama's less inevitable than people think. People think Alabama's this transcendent team this year because they finally have an offense. And they are very good. But, look, we would put them... I mean, it's not just us. I mean, I, we, we we would say they're about a touchdown favorite over Ohio State on a neutral field right now. Um, we're not the only people saying that. That's like that. Our best bet on the betting line would be about a seven point thing. But now Clemson has snuck up. Clemson has snuck up as only two points down, three points down from from uh, Alabama. So these things are still dynamic. Alabama's ahead of the field, but they're not lapping the field. Tua is. An incredible quarterback. We're not used to seeing that kind of quarterback for Alabama. But these well, things are not inevitable. You also mentioned, made, made it seem there's also a very big game this week. Georgia visits LSU. Huge so, game. So let's imagine Georgia. Let's imagine LSU wins that game. Now, of course, LSU lost last week, which took a little sting from them. But if they beat Georgia, they have to be back in the mix, right? Uh, LSU, they're not going to be in the mix. They're just they're just not going to get it they're, done. They've, they've, they're, they're not going to get it done. But if they beat Georgia. Then the biggest consequence of their being Georgia is that Georgia has a loss, and the S- the chance of SEC getting two teams through is greatly diminished. That that would be helpful if you don't want the chalky outcome. You're looking for a loss from one of the SEC teams. That's the main thing. You want Georgia or Alabama to take a hit. So I mean, if they both go through the regular season undefeated, and then of course meet in the SEC title game, you believe that that, that game is I don't want to call it meaningless, but both of them would be in in your view. And very likely both would be. I mean, it depends a little on what else is going on. If Ohio State runs the table, if Notre Dame runs the table, Clemson runs the table, it's a little harder to say. But all three of those things are unlikely. And if they're unlikely, then it's going to be a, a easy to make a case for both Georgia and all right, so We maybe don't want to go down this hypothetical rabbit hole too much. But what does that, you know, you say that game is not meaningless. Does actually the, like, what what has to happen in that game for it to be meaningful? Does, does it have to be a real shellacking of one versus the other? We're talking about, we're talking about the like SEC the, the, title game. The, the, the SEC Kyle, now. this undefeated yeah, two right. team, team I, gets SEC title game. Matty Dat's Georgia Bulldogs get embarrassed. Yeah, sure. But the main thing that matters is what the other teams are doing. 
Yeah. That's what, you know, Matt's going to Baton Rouge this weekend. He's going to take that Georgia LSU. And that's a good way for a, a for a, another team's fans to participate in college football is to go to Baton Rouge when they're playing LSU. That's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, what else is going on this weekend? We got Washington, Oregon. You guys are sleeping on the Pac-12. They still have a chance. Washington is a legitimate team. They just happened to lose that first opening weekend game against Auburn. They're going against Oregon. Oregon is it's not a, a bad loss against no, Auburn. Let's not, not put it as well, like it looks. To. It looks. It looks worse every week. I mean, Auburn is I don't know five hundred or something right now. So it's it's not it's not helping them what Auburn is doing. But if Washington runs the table, do they are they in? I, have we? I don't think we've left off a one loss pack five championship did it happen last year in the in the big 12 they but but it all depends on how many of these other contenders if you're talking about jumping them over an undefeated notre dame an undefeated clemson one of the sec teams and then either ohio state or a second sec team i mean really that's a lot to jump over i'd see so let's be clear in my view they would not jump over an undefeated notre dame No no way no way Clemson would win the ACC, so if Clemson was undefeated, so that's an undefeated team in the yeah, major conference. Yeah, yeah. I would see them taking my own belief an un, a one loss Washington team over a second SEC team. I do yeah, see that. You, could, a, you, I know you disagree great, with that. Great question. It's yeah. just my belief. It's, yeah. it's a great. It depends on. They need to look impressive. They need teams like they're going to play Oregon this weekend. They could lose to Oregon, by the way. Oregon is coming back now. It's good to see Oregon, you know, getting their feet back under them. But they would need Oregon to like go on and look good for the rest of the year because the Pac-12 just they're the other teams out there are just not looking good. You know, Stanford comes out and drops it to Notre Dame and then gets blown away by Utah last weekend. I mean, the Pac-12 just doesn't look good, and that doesn't help Washington's case. Well, the game I'm looking at the most, though, for me is is I'm very interested in Georgia LSU, but Michigan Wisconsin. I I, I think Michigan's righted the ship, and I want to see that battle against Ohio State. You seem State. like a Midwestern guy. You sound like a Michigan Wisconsin. Well, I'm married right to an Ohio right Ohio, Ohio right. in, if that's what they call it. Penn, Penn, and she's a Penn State person. She's which a Penn is, State not alum. Quite Midwest, but it's getting in that direction. All right, so you know, let's go. Let's in the spirit of college football, let's go do an over under or two before we go to NFL. What do you think the uh, the number of Alabama championships are this year over under point five. <laughs> I think they won it all. I'm taking the over. Yeah, that's the way it feels, right? Yeah. You know, we, we Eric, what do you got? I listen to that. So I'm going under. I just have a sense that someone's going to beat Alabama this year. Wow. I do, and I'll tell you why. Just a sense. This is an no, analytic no, no, show. No, Come gonna, on, all man. Right, so I'm going to tell you why. I. I know this is just one game. I watched the last the game that they played. Remind me who they played this week against Alabama. I just watched the, the game. Uh, uh, Arkansas? It, it was Arkansas. While Alabama's offense is better, their defense, in my mind, is worse. I don't think Arkansas had any trouble moving the football. Arkansas made a couple of big turnovers, including, by the way, the score was 21-7. to I think it was the second quarter. At the goal line, the quarterback fumbled the ball. So it was about to be 21-14 to 14 in that game. And I'm not saying Arkansas is winning that game. I think Alabama's defense is mm-hmm. worse, and I think a team is going to score points on them. And 
I think I do not. I'm actually going. Is under. it regular season or just some point? I mean, like no, yeah, because when I, you I'm say they're going to lose at some point, they could. I think oh, they're I going. I do, yeah, well, okay. the championship they can yeah. lose in the regular season and still make the playoffs. Yeah, I do not think they're going to win the championship. I think their defense right. is worse than it. Has I, been in the past. I mean, I certainly don't regard it as inevitable, but I have more confidence in Alabama. All right, well, I'm going I, under. They're the best yeah. team, but but given the number of games yep. they have to play and given the strength of competition around them, especially when they get to the playoffs, we put it at something like 34. percent So not only do we think it's below 0.5, we're going to give the field two to one mm. over Alabama. Um, and by the way, we asked company, 538's projections have them even lower. 538's projections have them the favorite, but the favorite they have at something like 20%. Mm-hmm. Interesting. By the way, I think that would shock most people. Back to your question from like four weeks ago about what's the probability of any given foursome. And we said, you know, we were guessing, oh, 10%. And the answer is like one one hundredth of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think most people, what do you mean 538? Aren't they only 20%? That's the favorite at that's 20%. Favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think that's a little low, but I like to have some company that far below 0.5. All right, guys, let's change up and look at the NFL. You got some matchups this weekend. We got some interesting games this weekend. We have a monster game on Sunday night. Moneyball matchups. All right, Eric Bradlow. When you look at this schedule, well, I'm going to. What are you excited I'm, about? I'm obviously going to leave the Sunday night game to Mr. Boston, uh, Shane Jensen. So I'll leave the Sunday night game to him. Although that is a really fascinating game. Oof. So I'm going to pick a game that. Well, let me just say one from a betting perspective, and then one from not. First of all, I don't know what people are watching, even though they're not doing particularly well this year. The Atlanta Falcons only a three and a half point favorite against Tampa Bay. Atlanta's going to win that game, and they're going to win it by a Lance lot more. won like one game this year. I understand, and two is coming this Sunday. Okay. But okay. either way, <laughs> um, let me let me say the game that actually has caught my eye, and maybe it's because just so the priors have changed. If I had told you at the beginning of the season, basically, that it would be a pick game, not that this is a you know the best team in the NFL, the Chargers at Browns I know. would be a pick game, essentially. That game, who would have thunk that that game would be so intriguing? It's not only intriguing. Let's be clear. Look, let me say the good news. The NFC should say, oh, my God, the Eagles are 2-3. and three. Great. They're like half a game back in the yeah. playoffs. The Cleveland Browns, given they just beat the Baltimore Ravens, they're, and, they're in the division. Yeah. They're in that division. So I'm really – if Cleveland wins that game – by the way, you know, because of the kicker, Cleveland could be 4-1 and one right yeah. now. Yep. Fact, probably the with worst divi- with division wins They missed against, an extra point against yeah. the Saints. The, everyone's saying the yeah. Saints. Are the, the Saints should have lost to Cleveland, and they should. I mean, Cleveland also should have beaten Pittsburgh with a decent. All right, as well. so all right, so already mm-hmm. we have them as they were could have beaten, maybe should yeah. have beaten New Orleans and Pittsburgh. I like Cleveland in this game. I think Cleveland's going to win the game. I think. All of a sudden, Cleveland's a very strange record, 3-2-1. and one. And by the way, my my youngest son, Ben, who's 12, he wanted Cleveland almost tied another game last week. Yeah. Could you imagine if their record had There's been already one, four 2-2-1 two, two, two teams. I know, but Cleveland would have been 1-2-2. Two, two. Yeah. <laughs> Cleveland almost had—I yeah. mean, the guy hit yeah. a field goal, was, which yeah. looked like a lame duck really at the close. end of the game. Yeah. That's another tie for Cleveland, but that's the game that caught my eye. I like I'm I'm I bought in. I'm going with Cleveland. Really? I like Baker Mayfield I mean, in that game, and I like I like Cleveland's defense. I think that's a great matchup game because I do think it's very intriguing. I do think I I I'm I'm 
going to buy into the Chargers beating the Browns. I mean, I do I do think Philip Rivers you is like going to Chargers face. beating the Browns. I okay. do. I do. I mean, the Cleveland's got a great defense. Um I just think, you know, a, a quarterback of the quality of Philip Rivers is going to walk in there and be able to actually be productive against them. Yeah, I'm short I'm still, you know, we we're challenged because you know, we have quarterback models in addition to team models. Yeah. They're the only player that we model. and Probably don't have his, much info on his, Baker well, Mayfield. And historically, what info we, we have wouldn't be advantageous. Even though he was drafted number one, rookie quarterbacks historically haven't done that well. And so it's a little tough mm-hmm. on a straight analytic basis based on history to have them very high. We have them only the 30th best team in the league despite the record and some wins. But the Chargers, on the other hand, we have, where are they? They're floating around pretty top 10. So... We're gonna we're the 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 market has them at at a one point favorite the Chargers and we're gonna make it more like a I don't know four and a half a point favorite so I'm not for the Chargers for the Chargers so let me let me pick a game and then we'll turn it to 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 Shane because he closes on the big game of the year but I I'll, I'm gonna stay in that division but I'll take the Steelers at yeah, Bengals that's also a great game one this is a lousy schedule this is an ugly schedule of games in the NFL but the Steelers looked real this past weekend they've been really up and down mostly down this weekend. The Bengals are one of the stories of the year, as far as I'm concerned. They've come back each of the last two weeks in convincing fashion. They've got a, they're leading the division. Now they're going to do it against you know one of their probably their hate, most hated rival. The Bengals are a three point favorite there. We think they're you know a one and a half point favorite, something like that. So we're not that far from the line, but that's the game I'm most interested in. That's well, a crucial, crucial game. I mean, the Bengals win that game. You know, all yeah, it's of it. a crucial game for the Steelers. I mean, the Bengals lose that game, and we're starting to doubt them, but they're still in a, a relatively good position. The Steelers lose another That's division right. game. It'd be, would it'd be, be pretty tough on them. Well, they I mean, would be I mean, I'm, two, I'm, three and one, <laughs> and, the, the, and the Bengals, Bengals would one. be five and one. Yeah. 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 Be a, a, we'd be in a different world. Be a, like, that, that division would look that different. That division would be the opposite ordering, basically, of what we predicted. Almost as important as last week's. Dolphins yeah. Patriot game. Well, you know, if the pa- Dolphins yeah. had if, had if, won if, that game, that's right. you know, if if okay, yeah. Shane, what do you got? Oh, that Patriots Chiefs game. I mean, <laughs> it is probably the marquee matchup of the week, right? Um, uh, no, I mean, the no Chiefs question. come in looking unstoppable, um, but you know, the Patriots always do play well. So, I I, I see the Chiefs uh, winning that game. I think you do. Yeah. So the I mean, Pats, I mean, Pats, I, I'm Pats not convinced. Th- Pats are three and a half point favorites, even despite no. the record. The Pats are three and a half point favorites, and I, is- I, I, I don't think that should be the case. I mean, you know, people have been watching the Pats over the last like five years, five games, and I mean, we can convince ourselves that somehow they're they're just sort of playing below their level, but I do not have any confidence in that Pats defense. Stop. I mean, seeing what Kansas City did to Jacksonville yeah. this last weekend, I do not have any confidence that Pat's <laughs> defense is going to... I mean, this game could end up being like 40-38 or something like that. It's Take the over. It's interesting that none of us, by the way, I'm definitely taking the over. It's interesting that none of us picked the Eagles at Giants, which um, my, you know, my friend Steve Siegel, who was watching the Giant game with me, we were desperately rooting last week. I don't know if you guys remember what happened. We should talk about this for yeah. 10 seconds. The Panthers beat the Giants last week on a 63-yard field goal to end the game. The Giants were up 31-30, yeah. to 30, and the Panthers drove half the field and kicked a 63-yarder. The reason my friend Steve and I were so excited was in the eliminator that we're in, by the way, it's, we're one of 60 teams left out of 900. After right. five weeks, right. one of 60 left. But if the 80 people had had zero and one loss had the Panthers, it would have gone down to 20. Wow. I couldn't, but either way, yeah. Eagles at Giants is a big game. The Eagles are two and three. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is a two big, and three. Yeah, I, I think that is another big game for them as well. 
And yeah, I, I think the I, I see the Eagles as scuffling the way a lot of teams after winning the season. There is kind of a, I think a bit of a, a hangover there, or at least like there's there was unrealistic expectations on the Eagles coming into this season. Two and three sounds about right to me, frankly, for that team. But if they go two and four and lose the Giants, then we really are. that that would let's, surprise. Let's me. say the following: Eagles and Eagles and Patriots might both be three and three after this yeah. week. Could be. All right, guys, you managed to conjure some interest in this weekend slate, despite <laughs> despite what it looks like. We've got a few games worth paying attention to. That has been another two hours of Wharton Money, but we do this every Wednesday morning. Come back and join us next time. Thank you from Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, and Cade Massey. A big thanks. Matty Datz, the boss man producer, and Danielle Bruno on the board helping us out. As always, couldn't do it without you. You guys have a great week. We'll be back here Wednesday between now and then. Enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.